Chapter Six, Part One of Hilda Wade. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Hilda Wade, a woman with tenacity of purpose, by Grant Allen. Chapter Six, Part One. The episode of the letter with the Basingstoke postmark. I have a vast respect for my grandfather. He was a man of forethought. He left me a modest little income of seven hundred a year, well invested. Now seven hundred a year is not exactly wealth, but it is an unobtrusive competence. It permits a bachelor to move about the world and choose at will his own profession. I choose medicine, but I was not fully dependent upon it, so I honored my grandfather's wise disposition of his worldly goods though oddly enough my cousin tom to whom he left his watch and five hundred pounds speaks most disrespectfully of his character and intellect thanks to my grandfather's silken sail bark therefore when i found myself practically dismissed from nathaniel's i was not thrown on my beam ends as most young men in my position would have been i had time and opportunity for the favorite pastime of looking about me of course had i chosen i might have fought the case to the bitter end against sebastian he could not dismiss me that lay with the committee but i hardly cared to fight in the first place though i had found him out as a man i still respected him as a great teacher and in the second place which is always more important i wanted to find and follow hilda to be sure hilda in that enigmatic letter of hers had implored me not to seek her out but i think you will admit there is one request which no man can grant to the girl he loves and that is the request to keep away from her if hilda did not want me i wanted hilda and being a man i meant to find her my chances of discovering her whereabouts however i had to confess to myself when it came to the point were extremely slender she had vanished from my horizon melted into space my sole hint of a clue consisted in the fact that the letter she sent me had been posted at basingstoke here then was my problem given an envelope with the basingstoke postmark to find in what part of europe asia africa or america the writer of it might be discovered it opened up a fine field for speculation when i set out to face this broad puzzle my first idea was i must ask hilda in all circumstances of difficulty i had grown accustomed to submitting my doubts and surmises to her acute intelligence and her instinct almost always supplied the right solution but now hilda was gone it was hilda herself i wished to track through the labyrinth of the world I could expect no assistance in tracking her from Hilda. Let me think, I said to myself over a reflective pipe with feet poised on the fender. How would Hilda herself have approached this problem? Imagine I am Hilda. I must try to strike a trail by applying her own methods to her own character. She would have attacked the question, no doubt. Here I eyed my pipe wisely, from the psychological side she would have asked herself i stroked my chin what such a temperament as hers was likely to do 
under such and such circumstances, and she would have answered it aright. But then I puffed away once or twice. She is Hilda. When I came to reconnoitre the matter in this light, I became at once aware how great a gulf separated the clumsy male intelligence from the immediate and almost unerring intuitions of a clever woman. I am considered no fool in my own profession, I may venture to say. I was Sebastian's favorite pupil, yet though I ask myself over and over again where Hilda would be likely to go, Canada, China, Australia, as the outcome of her character, in these given conditions, I got no answer. I stared at the fire and reflected. I smoked two successive pipes and shook out the ashes. Let me consider how Hilda's temperament would work, I said, looking sagacious. I said it several times, but there I stuck. I went no further. The solution would not come. I felt that in order to play Hilda's part, it was necessary first to have Hilda's headpiece. Not every man can bend the bow of Ulysses. As I turned the problem over in my mind, however, one phrase at last came back to me, a phrase which Hilda herself had let fall when we were debating a very similar point about poor Hugo Legate. If I were in his place, what do you think I would do? Why, hide myself at once in the greenest recesses of our Carnivonshire mountains. She must have gone to Wales, then. I had her own authority for saying so. And yet, Wales! Wales! I pulled myself up with a jerk. In that case, how did she come to be passing by Basingstoke? Was the postmark a blind? Had she hired someone to take the letter somewhere for her on purpose to put me off on a false track? I could hardly think so. Besides, the time was against it. I saw Hilda at Nathaniel's in the morning. The very same evening I received the envelope with the Basingstoke postmark. If I were in his place! Yes, true, but now I come to think on it. Were the positions really parallel? Hilda was not flying for her life from justice. She was only endeavouring to escape Sebastian and myself. The instances she had quoted of the mountaineer's curious homing instinct, the wild yearning he feels at moments of great straits to bury himself among the nooks of his native hills, were they not all instances of murderers pursued by the police? It was abject terror that drove these men to their burrows. But Hilda was not a murderer. She was not dodged by remorse, despair, or the myrmidons of the law. It was murder she was avoiding, not the punishment of murder. That made, of course, an obvious difference. Irrevocably far from London, she said. Wales is a suburb. I gave up the idea that it was likely to prove her place or refuge from the two men she was bent on escaping. Hong Kong, after all, seemed more probable than Lunbury's. That first failure gave me a clue, however, as to the best way of applying Hilda's own methods. What would such a person do under the circumstances? That was her way of putting the question. Clearly, then, I must first decide what were the circumstances. Was Sebastian speaking the truth? 
was hilda wade or was she not the daughter of the supposed murderer dr york bannerman i looked up as much of the case as i could in unobtrusive ways among the old law reports and found that the barrister who had had charge of the defence was my father's old friend mr horace mayfield a man of elegant tastes and the means to gratify them i went to call on him on sunday evening at his artistically luxurious house in onslow gardens a sedate footman answered the bell fortunately mr mayfield was at home and what is rarer disengaged you do not always find a successful q c at his ease among his books beneath the electric light ready to give up a vacant hour to friendly colloquy remember york bannerman's case he said a huge smile breaking slowly like a wave over his genial fat face horace mayfield resembles a great good-humoured toad with bland manners and a capacious double chin i should just say i did bless my soul why yes he beamed i was york bannerman's counsel excellent fellow york bannerman most unfortunate end though precious clever chap too had an astounding memory recollected every symptom of every patient he ever attended and such an eye diagnosis it was clairvoyance a gift no less knew what was the matter with you the moment he looked at you that sounded like hilda the same surprising power of recalling facts the same keen faculty for interpreting character or the signs of feeling he poisoned somebody i believe i murmured casually an uncle of his or something mayfield's great squat face wrinkled the double chin folding down on the neck became more ostentatiously doubled than ever well i can't admit that he said in his suave voice twirling the string of his eyeglass i was jock bannerman's advocate you see and therefore i was paid not to admit it besides he was a friend of mine and i always liked him but i will allow that the case did look a trifle black against him ha huh? look black did it i faltered the judicious barrister shrugged his shoulders a genial smile spread oilily once more over his smooth face none of my business to say so he answered puckering the corners of his eyes still it was a long time ago and the circumstances certainly were suspicious perhaps on the whole hubert it was just as well the poor fellow died before the trial came off otherwise he pouted his lips i might have had my work cut out to save him and he eyed the blue china gods on the mantelpiece affectionately i believe the crown urged money as the motive i suggested mayfield glanced inquiry at me now why do you want to know all this he asked in a suspicious voice coming back from his dragons it is irregular very to worm information out of an innocent barrister in his hours of ease about a former client we are a gillis race we lawyers don't abuse our confidence he seemed an honest man i thought in spite of his mocking tone i trusted him and made a clean breast of it i believe i answered with an impressive little pause i want to marry york bannerman's daughter he gave a quick start 
what macy he exclaimed i shook my head no no that is not the name i replied he hesitated a moment but there is no other he hazarded cautiously at last i knew the family i am not sure of it i went on i have merely my suspicions i am in love with a girl and something about her makes me think she's probably a york bannerman but my dear hubert if that is so the great lawyer went on waving me off with one fat hand it must be at once apparent to you that i am the last person on earth to whom you ought to apply for information remember my oath the practice of our clan the seal of secrecy i was frank once more i do not know whether the lady i mean is or is not york bannerman's daughter i persisted she may be and she may not she gives another name that's certain but whether she is or isn't one thing i know i mean to marry her i believe in her i trust her i only seek to gain this information now because i don't know where she is and i want to track her he crossed his big hands with an air of christian resignation and looked up at the panels of the coffered ceiling in that he answered i may honestly say i can't help you humbug apart i have not known mrs york bannerman's address or Macy's either ever since my poor friend's death prudent woman mrs york bannerman she went away i believe to somewhere in north wales and afterwards to brittany but she probably changed her name and she did not confide in me i went on to ask him a few questions about the case premising that i did so in the most friendly spirit oh i can only tell you what is publicly known he answered beaming with the usual professional pretence of the most sphinx-like reticence but the plain fact as universally admitted were these i break no confidence york bannerman had a rich uncle from whom he had expectations a certain admiral scott Pridor. this uncle had lately made a will in york bannerman's favour but he was a cantankerous old chap naval you know autocratic crusty given to changing his mind with each change of the wind and easily offended by his relations the sort of cheerful old party who makes a new will once every month disinheriting the nephew he last dined with well one day the admiral was taken ill at his own house and york bannerman attended him our contention was i speak now as my old friend's counsel that scott Pridor, getting as tired of life as we are all tired of him and weary of his recurrent worry of will-making determined at last to clear out for good from a world where he was so little appreciated and therefore tried to poison himself with the aconitine i suggested eagerly unfortunately yes he made use of aconitine for that otherwise laudable purpose now as ill luck would have it mayfield's wrinkles deepened york bannerman and sebastian then two rising doctors engaged in physiological researches together had just been occupied in experimenting upon this very drug testing the use of aconitine indeed you will no doubt remember he crossed his fat hands again comfortably it was these precise researches on a then little known poison that first brought sebastian prominently before the public what was the consequence 
His smooth, persuasive voice flowed on as if I were a concentrated jury. The admiral grew rapidly worse, and insisted upon calling in a second opinion. No doubt he didn't like the aconitine when it came to the pinch, for it does pinch, I can tell you, and repented him from his evil. York Bannerman suggested Sebastian as the second opinion. The uncle acquiesced. Sebastian was called in, and, of course, being fresh from his researches, immediately recognized the symptoms of aconitine poisoning. "'What, Sebastian found it out?' I cried, starting. "'Oh, yes, Sebastian. He watched the case from that point to the end, and the oddest part of it all was this, that though he communicated with the police, and himself prepared every morsel of food that the poor old admiral took from that moment forth, the symptoms continually increased in severity. The police contention was that York Bannerman somehow managed to put the stuff into the milk beforehand. My own theory was, as counsel for the accused, he blinked his fat eyes, that old Prideaux had concealed a large quantity of aconitine in the bed before his illness, and went on taking it from time to time, just to spite his nephew. And you believe that, Mr. Mayfield? The broad smile broke concentrically in ripples over the great lawyer's face. His smile was Mayfield's main feature. He shrugged his shoulders and expanded his big hands wide open before him. "'My dear Hubert,' he said, with the most humorous expression of countenance, "'you are a professional man yourself. Therefore you know that every profession has its own little courtesies, its own small fictions.' I was York Bannerman's counsel, as well as his friend. Tis a point of honour with us that no barrister will ever admit a doubt as to a client's innocence. Is he not paid to maintain it? And to my dying day I will constantly maintain that old Prideaux poisoned himself. Maintain it with that dogged and meaningless obstinacy with which we always cling to whatever is least probable. Oh, yes, he poisoned himself and York Bannerman was innocent. But still, you know, it was the sort of case where an acute lawyer with a reputation to make would prefer to be for the crown rather than for the prisoner. But it was never tried, I ejaculated. No, happily for us, it was never tried. Fortune favoured us. York Bannerman had a weak heart, a conveniently weak heart, which the inquest sorely affected and besides he was deeply angry at what he persisted in calling sebastian's defection he evidently thought sebastian ought to have stood by him his colleague preferred the claims of public duty as he understood them i mean to those of private friendship it was a very sad case for york bannerman was really a charming fellow but i confess i was relieved when he died unexpectedly on the morning of his arrest it took off my shoulders a most serious burden. You think, then, the case would have gone against him? My dear Hubert, his whole face puckered with an indulgent smile, of course the case must have gone against us. Juries are fools, but they are not such fools as to swallow everything, like ostriches. To let me throw dust in their eyes about so plain an issue. Consider the facts. Consider them impartially. York Bannerman had easy access to aconitine, had whole ounces of it in his possession. He treated the uncle from whom he was to inherit. 
he was in temporary embarrassments that came out at the inquest it was known that the admiral had just made a twenty-third will in his favor and that the admiral's wills were liable to alteration every time a nephew ventured upon an opinion in politics religion science navigation or the right card at whist differing by a shade from that of the uncle the admiral died of aconitine poisoning and sebastian observed and detailed the symptoms could anything be plainer i mean could any combination of fortuitous circumstances he blinked pleasantly again be more adverse to an advocate sincerely convinced of his client's innocence as a professional duty and he gazed at me comically the more he piled up the case against the man who i now felt sure was hilda's father the less did i believe him a dark conspiracy seemed to loom up in the background has it ever occurred to you i asked at last in a very tentative tone that perhaps i threw out the hint as a mere suggestion perhaps it may have been sebastian who he smiled this time till i thought his smile would swallow him if york bannerman had not been my client he mused aloud i might have been inclined to suspect rather that sebastian aided him to avoid justice by giving him something violent to take if he wished it something which might accelerate the inevitable action of the heart disease from which he was suffering isn't that more likely i saw that there was nothing further to be got out of mayfield his opinion was fixed he was a placid ruminant but he had given me already much food for thought i thanked him for his assistance and returned on foot to my rooms at the hospital i was now however in a somewhat different position for tracking hilda from that which i occupied before my interview with the famous counsel i felt certain by this time that hilda wade and Macy york bannerman were one and the same person to be sure it gave me a twinge to think that hilda should be masquerading under an assumed name but i weighed that question for the moment and awaited her explanations the great point now was to find hilda she was flying from sebastian to mature a new plan but whither i proceeded to argue it out on her own principles oh how lamely the world is still so big mauritius the argentine british columbia new zealand the letter i had received bore the basingstoke postmark now a person may be passing basingstoke on his way either to southampton or plymouth both of which are ports of embarkation for various foreign countries i attached importance to that clue something about the tone of hilda's letter made me realize that she intended to put the sea between us in concluding so much i felt sure i was not mistaken hilda had too big and too cosmopolitan a mind to speak of being irrevocably far from london if she were only going to some town in england or even to normandy or the channel islands irrevocably far pointed rather to a destination outside europe altogether to india africa america not to jersey dieppe or st malo was it southampton or plymouth to which she was first bound that was the next question i inclined to southampton for the sprawling lines so different from her usual neat hand were written hurriedly in a train i could see and on consulting bradshaw 
i found that the plymouth express stopped longest at salisbury where hilda would therefore have been likely to post her note if she were going to the far west while some of the southampton trains stop at basingstoke which is indeed the most convenient point on that route for sending off a letter this was mere blind guesswork to be sure compared with hilda's immediate and unerring intuition but it had some probability in its favour at any rate try both of the two she was likelier to be going to southampton my next move was to consult the list of outgoing steamers hilda had left london on a saturday morning now on alternate saturdays the steamers of the castle line sail from southampton where they call to take up passengers and mails was this one of those alternate saturdays i looked up the list of dates it was that told further in favour of southampton but did any steamer of any passenger line sail from plymouth on the same day none that i could find or from southampton elsewhere i looked them all up the royal mail company's boats start on wednesdays the north german lloyds on wednesdays and sundays those were the only likely vessels i could discover either then i concluded hilda meant to sail on saturday by the castle line for south africa or else on sunday by north german lloyd for some part of america how i longed for one hour of hilda to help me out with her almost infallible instinct i realized how feeble and fallacious was my own grouping in the dark her knowledge of temperament would have revealed to her at once what i was trying to discover like the police she despised by the clumsy clues which so roused her sarcasm however i went to bed and slept on it next morning i determined to set out for southampton on a tour of inquiry to all the steamboat agencies if that failed i could go on to plymouth but as chance would have it the morning post brought me an unexpected letter which helped me not a little in unravelling the problem it was a crumpled letter written on rather soiled paper in an uneducated hand and it bore like hilda's the basingstoke postmark charlotte churchwood sends her duty to dr cumberledge it said with somewhat uncertain spelling and i am very sorry that i was not able to post the letter to you in london as the lady asked me but after her train had left as i was stepping into mine the indian started and i was knocked down and badly hurt and the lady gave me a half sovereign to post it in london as soon as i got there but being unable to do so i now return it dear sir not knowing the lady's name and address she having trusted me through seeing me on the platform and perhaps you can send it back to her and was very sorry i could not post it where she asked me but time being an object put it in the box in basingstoke station and now enclose post-office order for ten shillings which dear sir kindly let the young lady have from your obedient servant charlotte churchwood in the corner was the address eleven chaps cottages basingstoke the happy accident of this letter advanced things for me greatly though it also made me feel how dependent i was upon happy accidents 
where hilda would have guessed right at once by mere knowledge of character still the letter explained many things which had hitherto puzzled me i had felt not a little surprise that hilda wishing to withdraw from me and leave no traces should have sent off her farewell letter from basingstoke so as to let me see at once in what direction she was travelling nay i even wondered at times whether she had really posted it herself at basingstoke or given it to somebody who chanced to be going there to post for her as a blind but i did not think she would deliberately deceive me and in my opinion to get a letter posted at basingstoke would be deliberate deception while to get it posted in london was mere vague precaution i understood now that she had written it in the train and then picked out a likely person as she passed to take it to waterloo for her end of chapter six part one read by lars rolander